This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. If you'd like to support the work we're doing, please visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Represent Us, The David Pakman Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The F Word with Laura Flanders, Democracy Now!, The Young Turks, Black Agenda Radio, Counterspin, and Activism from the Electronic Frontier Foundation and Flush the TPP. Hey, liberals, what if I told you that congressional Republicans supported a plan that gives multinational corporations enormous new power to threaten everything from internet freedom to affordable health care? That would make you pretty angry, right? And hey, conservatives, what if I told you that President Obama supported a plan that deliberately cedes congressional power to the executive branch and undermines U.S. sovereignty by allowing U.N. tribunals to overturn U.S. law? That's pretty infuriating, right? Well, everybody gets to be angry today because we're actually talking about the same plan. It's a massive international trade agreement called the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP, and both the Obama administration and Republicans in Congress are trying to get it passed before the public can figure out what's in it. Given all that, it is no surprise that the Obama administration has tried to keep the details of the TPP negotiations secret. The only way the public has any idea what's in this thing is because some unidentified saint has been leaking drafts to the press. The TPP is one of the largest trade deals in history and it would establish a trade block that includes roughly 800 million people and accounts for 40% of the global economy. It would also put huge decisions that would directly affect the day-to-day lives of those 800 million people in the hands of a mind-bogglingly small group of lawyers by establishing a system called Investor State Dispute Settlement, or ISDS. ISDS cases allow foreign companies to bypass the U.S. legal system and go straight to an international trade tribunal to demand compensation directly from American taxpayers. Because, as always, the most evil of things come in the most boring of packages. So boring. Also, I said packages. That's kind of funny. (laughs) Bending off these cases costs governments big. Legal expenses alone cost taxpayers an average of $8 million per investor state dispute. Now, ISDS is not a new concept. It's actually been around since the 1950s. The problem is that modern agreements like the TPP have become so broad that companies can now launch massive legal actions against government for just passing laws that could threaten their earnings, regardless of what the people who elected those governments actually want. And since ISDS accords are already a part of other trade agreements, we can see exactly what these cases look like. For example, tobacco companies are using the ISDS system to bully countries out of mandating tougher warning labels for cigarettes. Or if you want an even more cartoonishly evil example, there's the case of Doe Run Peru, whose smelting machinery outside a small Peruvian city exposed the area's children to drastic elevated lead levels and led to an outbreak of symptoms consistent with lead poisoning, like anemia, convulsions, and stunted growth. The Peruvian government made repeated efforts to impose pollution cleanup plans, but Doron Peru claimed the new regulations were too onerous to comply. Since then, it's used the investor state system to demand $800 million from Peruvian taxpayers, claiming the pollution cleanup was too expensive. So, in advocating for the TPP, the Obama administration and congressional Republicans are open up the United States to more of the exact same kind of ISDS complaints. The TPP would empower 9,000 additional foreign companies to bring cases against American governments and do so without ever setting foot in a U.S. court. That's because investor state disputes are decided by tribunals organized by the World Bank or the United Nations. Multinational corporations can bring cases against governments and their taxpayers, but not the other way around. And there's no appeals process to challenge tribunal decisions. There's no judge, no jury, and each 
case is decided individually with no requirement to consider precedent cases. Instead, cases are decided by a panel of three arbitrators selected from a small group of corporate lawyers who specialize in international trade disputes. And when I say small, I mean small. According to a 2012 report, just 15 arbitrators have decided 55% of all known investment treaty disputes. Arbitrators are also paid $600 to $700 per hour, so there is zero incentive to resolve cases quickly, dragging cases out, and racking up even more legal costs for the countries being sued. So why is this happening? Why what is this happening? What possible reason could there be for this decision. I can't I just figure it out. I, can't I have think no of idea. Any reason. Money. It's it's money. It's, money it's, thing. it's the point. Yeah. It's money thing. Remember how top secret all TPP documents are supposed to be? Well, there's one group that has full access. Major political donors. Corporate advisors for companies who have helped raise millions of dollars for politicians of both parties were given passwords that let them view an online version of the latest draft whenever they want. And this is why most of the leaked TPP provisions read like a wish list for some of the most powerful special interests in Washington. Everyone from Hollywood to pharmaceutical companies is getting a piece of that action. So, what can we do about it? Ooh. Okay, what else can we do about it? Hmm. Once you've poured yourself a drink, if you feel so inclined, the most important thing to remember is that trade agreements like this cannot stand up to public scrutiny and fall apart as soon as a critical mass of the public finds out what's in them. So if you want to stop the TPP, the most important thing you can do is spread the word and let people know that this is happening. And if you remember from this portion of our show, the root cause is money and politics. So don't forget to follow the money. It's hard to face the future when you Watch your back Follow all the money I see where it stops You trace it on its journey From the bottom to the top It starts in the gutter It rises up like that It rises up As I told you yesterday, we do now have a deal that has been reached to get the Trans-Pacific Partnership made into law. But to clarify, and I think there may have been some confusion yesterday, this does not mean that TPP is law. What this means is that those constructing the deal have agreed about what's in the deal. Now legislators in each country that is involved in TPP need to see it, hopefully, <laughs> in, in an ideal world, read it, think about it, and then ultimately vote on it. And as I mentioned yesterday, great for corporations, not good for people, not good for the environment, not good for freedom on the Internet. Five years of secret negotiations for a deal that will impact 40% of the world's economy made essentially in secret, and it will not be fully public for years. What do we know? Variety of reports, the UK Independent, for example, says that TPP in the form that, that has been agreed to yesterday will make it a crime to reveal corporate wrongdoing, quote, through a computer system. If that sounds vague to you, it is because it is deliberately vague. Speculation is 
that it could very well lead to whistleblowers being penalized for sharing important information, including information about, as whistleblower implies, wrongdoing by corporations. And from the point of view of the journalist, this could lead to journalists being more reticent to report on information received from whistleblowers. Other provisions relating to the Internet uh, it would require online content providers like Facebook and YouTube to take down content if they receive just one complaint since they are in the United States. This would be hugely harmful for startups that are trying to build businesses because it's very easy, and we experience it just at the David Pakman Show with our YouTube channel. There's this sort of uh, deference given to the complainer and as a small show without many resources, when we get some kind of complaint, be it copyright or whatever it may be with our content, it's a much bigger deal for us to deal with it than for CNN that has a ton of staff attorneys there and waiting for this type of thing. And you can see how this type of provision could disproportionately hurt small business. And then additionally, when it comes to surveillance, there is uh, it is thought that there will be significant new rules about surveillance. Quote, under the TPP proposal, Internet service providers could be required to police user activity, take down Internet content, and cut people off from Internet access for common user-generated content. If you go and look, for example, at the website of the Office of the U.S. Trade Representative, they talk about TPP. They have some really great-sounding bullet points about how wonderful TPP is. They say, for example, we will enhance food security by eliminating barriers to trade in agricultural goods and commodities. They say they will, uh, oh, how is it worded? Uh, uh, digi pr protect digital freedom, which to me says, you mean you're going to impose U.S. style copyright on the rest of the world to allow corporations to quash anything they don't like. That's what I'm hearing there. The website says TPP will promote transparency, participation, and accountability in government decision-making. Consider how TPP was negotiated and tell me if you believe for a second that TPP is going to in any way promote real transparency. So as we get more information, we will pass it along to you. TPP signed off on in the sense of what it will contain, not yet made law by any country. We've got several months ahead of us, at minimum, uh, before we will ultimately see what happens with that. Now it's time you reconsider How long is this gonna last? Just want to get back to this whole to Shafta, the Southern Hemisphere Asian Free Trade Agreement, also known as the Trans-Pacific Partnership (TPP). It will expand and strengthen what are called investor-state dispute settlements (ISDS). Now, what the heck is ISDS? It's where a private for-profit corporation can sue a country 
because the country has laws that reduce the profitability of that corporation. Right now, Australia and Ecuador are being sued by Philip Morris because those two countries raised taxes on cigarettes and said you cannot put your your logo on the package and you got to put a picture of a person whose teeth are falling out because they smoke, you know, or a dead, you know, a, a lung or whatever um, on the package. And Philip Morris says that's going to diminish our, our profitability. We're going to sue you. Australia and Ecuador are saying, no, we want to save the lives of our citizens. Do you think Philip Morris gives a rat's ass about the lives of anybody? I mean, <laughs> look at what they sell. So anyhow, what is what happens with these? What has happened? Here are some classic examples of the lawsuits that have already happened as a result of these investor-state dispute settlements. These all are based on NAFTA, CAFTA, uh, NAFTA or CAFTA, the, the Central Free Trade Agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. Uh, the first one, this, by the way, I'm getting this from the NakedCapitalism.com website. Uh, this is a post by Lambert Strether. Uh, it's titled, From Public Citizen, the Top Ten Most Pernicious Investor-State Dispute Settlement Lawsuits. So apparently this is originally content from um, Public Citizen. The Lowen Group. This is a group, this is a funeral home conglomerate up in Canada. Right. They were running, they, they, they were doing business down in Mississippi, and a jury in Mississippi said that the Lowen Group was engaged in anti-competitive and predatory business practices that, quote, clearly violated every contract it ever had with a local Mississippi funeral home, end quote. So you got a Canadian company ripping off a local, locally owned American business. The locally owned American business takes it to court. The jury awards the local funeral home damages of $500 million. So what does the Lowen Group do? They go to a NAFTA, Investor State Dispute Settlement, court, where corporations run the court, corporations are the judges, corporations are the prosecutors, and they sued the state of Mississippi for two for $725 million, and they won. That's number one. Number two, S.D. Myers. This is a trash company. When Canada imposed a temporary ban on the export of hazardous waste called polychlorinated biphenyls, PCBs, because the you know we, the EPA says that they're toxic to humans and the environment, U.S. Waste Treatment Company S.D. Myers launched a case under NAFTA that resulted in an ISDS tri tribunal ordering Canada to pay the country the company almost six million dollars. Right? You're cutting our profits because we can't ship toxic waste to you. You owe us six million dollars. Canada lost. Corporation won. Here at Best of the Left, we know that it's not enough just to stay informed. You need to get active if you actually want to change the world for the better. That's why we promote great activism opportunities every chance we get. Also, I can only reach so many people on my own, but with your help, we can extend that reach. The episode show notes are most likely available on the device you're using to listen right now, and if they're not, you can see them on the website. Simply click the title of any segment you want to share and then easily post it to your social networks or send it directly to friends. 
You joining these actions and helping amplify the show to get even more people involved is critical to our mission to change the world for the better. Get started right now in the show notes on the device you're using or visit the website from any device at bestoftheleft.com. LED signs, banner drops, projections on famous monuments. People have used all manner of tactics to spread the word about the Trans-Pacific Partnership, or TPP. Still, a vote on the largest trade pact of our time is looming before most voters have even heard of it. Media coverage just might have helped, but in the 18 months leading up to January 1st this year, Network News, ABC, CBS, and NBC made no mention of the TPP, none. And cable news was hardly better. You can just ask Media Matters for the data. Now that lawmakers are debating putting the TPP on a fast track, the partnership is a story, but it's not your story. It's a Beltway story, about how the deal's fate will affect politicians. Will the president get what he wants? Will her support hurt Hillary? What about all those Republican haters who finally found something barackish to love? It's no surprise. Expecting monopoly-made media to cover a made-for-monopolies trade deal is madness. Why would they? The very same money media corporations that purport to bring us the news won't wade into the weeds about jobs and wages and profits. Why? Well, maybe it's because they have flesh in the trade deal game. Multinational mass media corporations like Walt Disney, News Corp, and Comcast distribute content and own outlets around the world. Pesky citizens in some places have already passed environmental regs, consumer protection laws, and labor rights. What if people started passing laws defending media pluralism, too? What if cities or states started passing legislation that favored homegrown media over Disney? A draft of the TPP leaked by WikiLeaks earlier this year contained provisions that permit global corporations to sue over local preference laws and charge compensation for lost profits, too. On our show, we talk every week with people who've soured on neoliberalism. They're looking to deepen democracy and democratize wealth. Some are inspired by participatory budgeting in Brazil, others by the Zapatista experiment in Mexico. Some fancy putting local tax dollars to work for local worker-recovered companies like the ones in Argentina or cooperatives like those in Mondragon, Spain. The TPP, as far as we can see, will make all that harder. But... To paraphrase the poet Audrey Lord, don't look to the master's media to cover the master's monopolies. It won't happen. Want a new system? You need systemically different media, too. John Sifton, you're holding a news conference today with other human rights groups. Can you expand on, I mean, health rights are also a human right, but go further and talk about your overall human rights concerns with the TPP. Well, there, 
issues both within the agreement uh, with respect to the health issues, but also labor rights issues, and then there are uh, issues of, that are larger on the geopolitical level. The simple fact is this agreement rewards several countries which have atrocious human rights records. One of them is Vietnam, a one-party, undemocratic state ruled by the Communist Party of Vietnam. No elections, no freedom of speech. This is a country which locks up dissidents for criticizing the government, voicing their own issues. So that's one trading partner. Another, Brunei. The Sultan of Brunei wants to impose Sharia law, uh, which would result in adulterers being stoned to death, thieves having their hands cut off, uh, homosexuals whipped. This is a country which is also non-democratic, ruled by fiat, by a Sultan who inherited his power through birth. Then you have countries like Malaysia, which, although uh, emerging democracies have serious problems with freedom of expression and rights of lesbian, gay, transgender people, Singapore, the city-state uh, next to Malaysia, also has serious problems with labor rights and freedom of expression. All these countries would be rewarded by the United States. We'd like to see the United States use the agreement as a leverage to compel these countries to improve their human rights records. And yet, over the last four or five years, that hasn't really happened. A couple of the countries have made baby steps. Vietnam's done a few minor things, but by and large, no big agreements. Malaysia, in fact, its human rights record has gotten worse. Well, this is President Obama speaking last month about how the TPP would improve worker conditions in Vietnam, as well as here in the United States. So when you look at a country like Vietnam, under this agreement, Vietnam would actually, for the first time, have to raise its labor standards. It would have to set a minimum wage. It would have to pass safe workplace laws to protect its workers. It would even have to protect workers' freedom to form unions for the very first time. That would make a difference. That helps to level the playing field and it would be good for the workers in Vietnam even as it helps make sure that they're not undercutting competition here in the United States. So that's progress. John Sifton, that was President Obama speaking. Could you comment on what he said about the, the likelihood of uh, worker conditions improving as a consequence of the TPP? Well, look, we give credit to the administration for pushing along uh, a, a good labor chapter that would have provisions that would do some of the things that President Obama said. Problem is, all that would be on paper. The key issue here is, would those provisions be enforceable? Would Vietnamese workers be able to actually compel the government of Vietnam to make those supposed paper reforms a reality? And that's where the Obama administration has been very disingenuous. They suggest the labor chapter is enforceable. What they mean is that if Vietnam fails to meet the standards, uh, a non-existent Vietnamese union would bring a claim in a non-existent tribunal to compel Vietnam to improve its rights? No. The only possibility is that an outside group, maybe an international labor federation, could compel another country, like the United States, to bring a complaint against Vietnam about its labor practices in the abstract. And maybe after many years of tribunal litigation, that would result in some kind of penalty being imposed on Vietnam. That's not enforceability. That's, that's merely a process which might potentially impact Vietnam's reform process on the grand scale. Uh, there is nothing like the rights that investors have to compel governments to change their rules. And that, at the end of the day, is what's wrong with the TPP. It creates rights for companies and investors, 
but it doesn't create new rights for workers or civil society. It basically gives uh, corporations more rights than people. We've been telling you a decent amount about TPP, right? So that's the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a trade deal that uh, gives away a lot of our sovereignty. Now that's super relevant because corporations say, hey, if you try to regulate me, whether I'm putting toxic uh, material in the air, the water, as an example, um, you're preventing my future profits so I get to sue you in an international court and stop your ability to protect your community. It's amazing. It's an amazing giveaway of democracy, okay? So whatever else you might like or dislike in the trade deal, on that alone, there's no way you can do it. But TPP is not the only trade deal they're working on. They're also working on uh, TISA, which is Trade and Services Agreement. Now, in there is a provision that uh, revolves around the banks. So uh, this is thrown in there uh, to protect them. Now, listen carefully. I'm going to tell you what's in there, and then we will analyze what it means. They say here in Public Services International Report, the standstill clause would lock in current levels of services liberalization in each country, effectively banning any moves from a market-based to a state-based provision of public services. This clause would prohibit the creation of public monopolies in sectors that are currently open to private sector competition. So, hold, I'm going to explain what that means. That sounds complicated, but there's a simple explanation. They continue. Similarly, the ratchet clause... Uh, would automatically lock in any futures action taking to liberalize services in a given country. If a government did decide to privatize a public service, that government would be unable to return to a public model at a later date. Now, this is not strictly for the banks. I'll give you an example that is not about the banks. For example, some countries have tried to turn water and some even electricity into private hands. This used to be a public utility in that country and they would they privatize it. Now, we nearly had riots and revolutions based on this because then companies would start charging exorbitant rates for water and local people couldn't afford it. If you're poor, water's not an option for you. <laughs> you can't. It would rain, and the company would say that that is my rain, my water, I have the rights to it. You're not allowed to collect that water and drink it for free. Unbelievable. Now, what this would do is, if you ever privatized anything like water, electricity, etc., sorry, you're locked in forever, Okay. You cannot then make it public utility again. Now, why the banks? Why is this most relevant to them? Well, some places like Iceland, after the bank crash, nationalized their banks. Now, that was the right strategy because it wound up leading to a great economic recovery in the long term. And right now, they have one of the healthiest economies in Europe. And it's, it wasn't meant to keep the banks national forever. It wasn't. They weren't changing their uh, form of of uh, the market economy that they had, all they were doing was, hey, these banks are in a lot of trouble. We're going to rescue them, but when we do, we should get the profits back uh, because we're the ones putting the money in. And once they are stabilized, we will privatize them again, which is exactly what happened. 
Now, this would prevent that. You're never allowed to nationalize the banks. They're private. They cannot go back to being public ever. So if there's another crash, sorry, uh, you're going to have to pay all my bills. Uh, you can't. Then if you rescue me, you can't expect the profit back like any regular investor would because that you would be publicizing the banks. You would be making them public, and then that is not allowed according to this new trade agreement. Now, that's a pretty big deal. If you lock that into place, that gives them an enormous and completely unfair advantage and might screw over the local populations in any country, whether it's Bolivia, it's Argentina, or here in the United States. So they've got to, of course, keep a secret. Here's another provision we found out about. On June 3rd, 2015, WikiLeaks released 17 key documents related to TISA, which is considered perhaps the most important of the three deals being negotiated for fast-track trade authority. The documents were supposed to remain classified for five years after being signed, displaying a level of secrecy that outstrips even the TPP's four-year classification. So this is so important and so dangerous that the public is not allowed to know it about it when they are negotiating it. Of course, we only know because of the leaks, right? Thank God for those. that We're supposed to be in a democracy. But our government is giving away our democracy to multinational corporations, and we're not supposed to find out about it, and people who tell us about it get punished in a so-called democracy, right? And then afterwards, you're still not supposed to find out about it for five years as it's in place. Gee, I wonder why they want it to be secret. Now, if, it, if it was lovely and it was great for the American people and the people across the world, wouldn't you want them to know? Hey, look at this great trade agreement we did. Look at all the wonderful benefits it has for you. Because the benefits are pretty wonderful, but they're for the multinational corporations that are negotiating. It's amazing, isn't it? They can find out anything about the deal. They oftentimes write the deal. So the multinational corporations have the right to make these laws to supersede American law and the American people do not have the right to find out about it. Now, who do you think has more rights? The Supreme Court said that corporations are human beings and have all of the constitutional rights of human beings. They said they are people according to law. Okay. Now, they also have extra rights. They have the right to, uh, to come up with new laws and make sure you don't find out about it. And the whole point of a corporation was limited liability in the first place. That's also extra rights that a human being doesn't have. So the people that set up a corporation oftentimes can't get sued because of that limited liability. Extra rights. We have created, these are legal fictions. They didn't exist in the world. It wasn't like, oh, back in the day when we came out of Africa, there was the lions, the gorillas, and the corporations. No, corporations are legal fictions. We created them. They, they are machines built for a purpose. The purpose initially was just limited liability. They didn't have all those other rights. Now they have run amok. They've taken over the government. They are robots that have not, we have not built any morality code into. They're not built to be immoral. They're not built to be moral. They're built to be amoral. Their only objective, according to their code, which we wrote originally, is to maximize profits. And here they have done what a robot does. They have decided, if I take over a government by bribing legally, if I change the laws to be able to legally bribe the politicians, who also then nominate Supreme Court justices, I can buy the whole government. If I buy the government, I could rewrite the laws so I'm in charge and that government is not in charge. And the people, <laughs> we care about them least of all.
They're in our way as we maximize profits. We have built robots, they have taken over, and now they're about to destroy our laws and our democracy. That is why we object to these trade agreements. And, of course, everybody in the establishment that is funded by those robots fighting tooth and nail to make sure that this happens. There are some progressives and some conservatives who are principled who are fighting against it, but the establishment of the Republican Party and the Democratic Party, of course, uh, primarily Barack Obama, the guy who promises change, uh, is doing the exact opposite. They are fighting on behalf of multinational corporations that have funded their campaigns for time immemorial. So Barack Obama works for them, Mitch McConnell works for them, John Boehner works for them. They don't work for us. And they're trying to steal our democracy in the middle of the night while we're not looking, while we're not allowed to look. That's what these trade agreements are about. Okay, I know. Uh, we're, we're wild-eyed radicals because we actually read the contracts and the trade agreements that are now, some portions are, are public. Joseph Stiglitz agrees with all this. He's only won a couple of Nobel Prize in economics. What would he know? Yeah, I know. We're, we're the radicals. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I would like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and get everything you can get used from a place like Craigslist. You will save yourself a boatload of money and reduce the endless flow of new stuff getting shipped across the world because that seems more convenient than meeting a neighbor. Failing that, try a locally owned small business. Failing that, if you're left with no choice other than to buy something from a place like Amazon, then at least there's a way you can do it and support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, Amazon.ca, or Amazon.co.uk from the banner at bestofleft.com and shop as you normally would. Better yet, click through on the link to your country's Amazon store only once and then bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whether that be rejecting consumption altogether, consuming sustainably, or at least consuming in a subversive way. In the weeks before Barack Obama began his first term in office, we at Black Agenda Report described him as a center-right politician. Based on the cast of characters he chose for his cabinet and his announcement that Social Security and all entitlement programs would be put on the chopping block under his presidency. Six and a half years later, Obama stands at the far right wing of his own Democratic Party and on issues of corporate domination to the right of many Republicans. Obama's Trans-Pacific Partnership Treaty, the 21st Century Blueprint for Global Corporate Rule, garnered only 28 Democratic votes in a showdown on Capitol Hill last week. But, backed by 190 Republicans and all the assets that Wall Street can muster, Obama delivered a crushing defeat to his own party and to the health and welfare of all humanity.
So rotten is the stench of TPP, a treaty so toxic that it's a state secret, that only three members of the Congressional Black Caucus were willing to side with the first black president. The black TPP-3 are Gregory Meeks, the corporate servant from Queens, New York, Terry Sewell, the sellout who misrepresents Alabama's black belt, and Eddie Bernice Johnson, the congresswoman from Texas who occupies a special place of shame, since she also voted in favor of the disastrous NAFTA jobs-killing treaty 22 years ago. Back in 1993, Obama's political mentor, Bill Clinton, crossed over the aisle to lead Republicans to victory over his fellow Democrats in the fight to pass NAFTA, the treaty with Canada and Mexico. Clinton got a much larger share of Democrats to go along with his jobs-killing bill, but most of the party still opposed the deal. 102 Democrats voted yes versus 156 that said no to NAFTA. Six members of the Congressional Black Caucus went along with Bill Clinton, Carrie Meek of Florida, Mel Reynolds from Chicago, who two years later was forced to resign after a conviction for statutory rape, William Dollar Bill Jefferson, the money man from New Orleans who hid cash in his refrigerator, Floyd Flake, whose New York seat is now held by the thoroughly corrupted Gregory Meeks. Harold Ford, who went on to become George Bush's favorite black congressman. And Eddie Bernice Johnson, the only one of the six still in a position to betray more than 700,000 of her constituents in Dallas, Texas. In the generation since passage of NAFTA, the black economy has collapsed, largely due to the flight of manufacturing jobs to low-wage foreign shores. On Barack Obama's watch, black wealth fell to one-twentieth of median white household wealth, making it statistically impossible for African Americans to ever hope to reach parity with whites, short of a revolution. TPP will hasten the pace of social and economic decline in the United States, the real legacy of Barack Hussein Obama. For Black Agenda Radio, I'm Glenn Ford. The United States and 11 other Pacific Rim nations reached an agreement Monday on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, the largest regional trade accord in history. The agreement's been negotiated for eight years in secret and will encompass 40% of the global economy. U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman praised the deal. We expect this historic agreement to promote economic growth, support higher-paying jobs, enhance innovation, productivity, and competitiveness, raise living standards, reduce poverty in our countries, and to promote transparency, good governance, 
and strong labor and environmental protections. The secret 30-chapter text has still not been made public, although sections of draft text have been leaked by WikiLeaks during the negotiations. Congress will have at least 90 days to review the TPP before President Obama can sign it. The Senate granted Obama approval to fast-track the measure and present the agreement to Congress for a yes or no vote with no amendments allowed. During Senate hearings in June, Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders fought fast-track, warning that the American people need time to understand the TPP. The now Democratic presidential candidate issued a statement Monday saying, quote, I'm disappointed but not surprised by the decision to move forward on the disastrous Trans-Pacific Partnership trade agreement that will hurt consumers and cost Americans jobs. Wall Street and other big corporations have won again. It's time for the rest of us to stop letting multinational corporations rig the system to pad their profits at our expense, he said. One sticking point on the TPP had been the so-called death sentence clause, extending drug company monopolies on medicines. The United States and drug companies had pressed for longer monopolies on new biotech drugs, while multiple countries opposed the push, saying it could deny life-saving medicines to patients who cannot afford high prices. The compromise reportedly includes monopolies of between five and eight years. Well, in Atlanta last week, Zahara Heckscher, a cancer patient, disrupted TPP negotiations. She was arrested as she demanded access to the secret text to see whether it includes a death sentence clause. I'm not going to leave until the USTR shows me the secret death sentence clause so I can verify that the TPP is not going to prevent women like me with cancer from accessing the medicines we need to stay strong and stay alive. That was Zahara Heckscher, a breast cancer patient being arrested for protesting TPP negotiations last week at the Westin Hotel in Atlanta. Well, Zahara joins us today from Washington, D.C., as well as Rob Weissman, president of Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy group. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Zahara, talk about, on the eve of the approval of the TPP, or at least the agreement reached, it now but must be approved, at least in the United States, by Congress, why you got arrested. Um, thank you, Amy. Um, I got arrested because I learned about this death sentence clause in the TPP that would make these life-saving cancer drugs unavailable to women around the world um, for a period of five years, eight years, or 12 years. Um, we call it the death sentence clause because it would actually condemn women to death because they cannot afford or their health care systems can't afford the medicines. So when I heard that, I knew as a breast cancer patient that I had to do something. Can you say what your T-shirt says? Yes, my T-shirt says, I have cancer. I can't wait eight years. And um, we have learned that the... Um, the agreement uh, seems to still include a five to eight year period that allows de facto monopolies for life-saving drugs um, and other provisions that make regular medicines, not just the biologic medicines, unaffordable. Un un and so, unfortunately, the death sentence clause is still in the TPP. Your mother also had breast cancer? 
Yes, and that's another big motivation for me. I was only 11 when she died of breast cancer, and um, that was before these drugs were available. She only lived one year after she was diagnosed, and that's what breast cancer means without access to the modern medicines, uh, the biologics, and the other emerging medicines that, um, for example, have kept me alive for uh, seven years so far and still going strong. So I know very personally uh, what it means when people don't have access to the medicines. And I also know that breast cancer, it's not about just the individual patients. It's about the family. And, and for me, I'm fighting for my son to have a mom as much as I'm fighting for myself and for other women and their families. What do pharmaceutical companies have to gain from this, Zahara? The pharmaceutical companies have obscene profits to gain. And I'll tell you, just one of the medicines, the medicine called Herceptin, which is a monoclonal antibody, a biological drug, um, they make multiple billions of dollars on Herceptin uh, every year, charging patients uh, between fifty and $100,000 uh, per year for each patient, and uh, that's just one medicine. So six billion and up, depending on the year that you look at, um, is uh, how much they're making from just one cancer medicine. So um, it's not about um, profits, little profit fines. Get you know they they deserve some profits, but this is price gouging at the cost of lives. I want to ask about comments made by the U.S. Trade Representative Michael Froman on the impact of the TPP on both research and access to life-saving drugs. On biologics, as you know, this is one of the most challenging uh, issues in the negotiation. We've worked cooperatively with all of our TPP parties, partners to secure a strong and balanced outcome that both incentivizes the development of these new life-saving drugs while ensuring access to these pioneering medicines and their availability. And this is the first trade agreement in history to ensure a minimum uh, period of protection for biologics and in doing so will help set a regional model and will create an environment in which uh, through comparable treatment there will be an effective period of protection to encourage both innovation and access. Zahara, Zahara Heckscher, can you respond to this? And can you also talk about the relationship between generic drugs and biosimilar drugs? But first, respond to Froman. Sure. Um, uh, that statement I find very upsetting because it is so much spin that it's spinning, spinning the truth into a, a lie. It's really um, uh, inaccurate, an, an inaccurate um, description of the text uh, as far as we know. Of course, the, to the final text is, um, is secret, but we have some good information about what's in there. And um, he's saying it's balanced. The balance looks like this. Pharmaceutical profits, obscene profits, weighing things down. Patients' right to, to access an affordable medicine thrown out the window. So I don't call that um, balanced by any stretch of the imagination. And when he says protection, well, he's not talking about protecting people's lives. He's talking about protecting the profits of the pharmaceutical industry in, in countries where, frankly, some of the countries, patients cannot afford these medicines at the current prices, nor can health systems. Even in the wealthier countries that are part of the deal, Australia and New Zealand, for example,
their health systems are having trouble even paying for the existing biologicals, not to mention the new ones coming down the pipeline that are going to be affected by the TPP. My goal with this show is to inform, inspire, and activate listeners to push for positive change. With the support of listeners, I've been able to expand what we do here and make the show better over time. And the only way to continue doing that, to grow and improve, is with your support. I don't need a giant pile of money to run this show. I just need a steady, dependable stream of 5 and $10 monthly donations from people like you. For signing up, you'll also get access to special bonus content, including some behind-the-scenes stuff and more of my comments. If you believe in the mission of this show as much as I do, please help it continue to grow and improve by becoming a member today. Details are on the membership page at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support. Last week, I told you that the 12 nations involved in the Trans-Pacific Partnership have finalized what is going to be part of the deal. This does not mean that the deal has been actually approved by the individual countries, but merely that we have what is a final version of what will ultimately be discussed by the member countries. WikiLeaks has released the final text for the intellectual property rights chapter. And as I mentioned last week, We are talking, when thinking about the 12 countries involved in TPP, we're talking about a deal that will impact 40% of global GDP. The text is still being withheld from the public, but the particular intellectual property chapter has been obtained by WikiLeaks. This could impact the Internet. This could impact, it will impact medicine. It will impact publishers. It will impact civil liberties and biopatents and big corporations and their ability to impose the power of copyright and patent on small businesses and others. What did Public Citizen's Global Access to Medicine's program director say? This is Peter Maberduck. It's not good. Quote, the new monopoly rights for big pharma firms would compromise access to medicines in TPP countries. The TPP would cost lives. As a sort of guide to who came out on top in this thing, note that hundreds of representatives from big corporations were direct parties to the negotiations. Elected officials, very little or no access. Individuals, Lewis, absolutely no access. And Hillary Clinton previously referred to TPP as, quote, the gold standard in trade agreements. Can you imagine something more horrific? More recently, though, she did come out and say, based on what I know so far, I can't support this agreement. So what is in the chapter on intellectual property? The Electronic Frontier Foundation combed through it, and this is a huge understatement. They are alarmed. They are alarmed, which is such a drastic understatement. They notice that when you skim through it, it sort of seems like there's balanced provisions. Oh, here's some provisions that protect people, and then here's some provisions that protect corporations and countries. But when you look at the detail, Lewis, the provisions meant to protect people are non-binding, non-binding guidelines, right? Sort of suggestions. And then when you look at the provisions protecting the big corporations, those are binding in black and white pieces of the deal. That sounds about right. Uh, I mean, if, if 
you know, citizens had no say in what was being written here, and this is all just uh, corporations protecting themselves. Yes, the pieces about protecting citizens will be incredibly vague so that nothing can hold up in court. The general themes, the expansion of copyright terms, for, for example, the extension of copyright terms to life plus 70 years, the amount, uh, th this, this basically is a transfer of wealth from users to large rights-holding corporations, a ban on circumventing digital rights management. So if you have someone tinkering with a file or a device that contains copyrighted work, they can be made criminally liable even if there is no specific copyright infringement by a broad ban on circumventing digital rights management, which of course is not a, a legal issue. Digital rights management is a corporate issue. And then of course, the full on craziness, criminal enforcement and civil damages, rights holders can submit any legitimate measure of value to determine damages in a copyright case. So to give you an example of this, What's a good example? Think back to Napster and LimeWire lawsuits. You download 300 MP3s, right? Uh, you could conceivably, based on what TPP has in the intellectual property chapter, you could be sued for the MSRP, the full value of the property that uh, a corporation can reasonably assign to their product. That is insane, Lewis. I mean, think about the potentially bankrupting nature of that. Uh, yeah, and I guess, you know, a lot of this will come down to what the court decides is, I mean, is this totally up to, you know, it, it can't be totally up to the, the company, right? Well, what this does is set a, a framework that operates outside of an individual country's uh, judicial system, and that's what's so scary about it. And the list goes on in doing that, Lewis, protecting trade secrets in a way that's bad for people instituting top-down control of the internet and the bomb throwing is starting with regard to the people that allowed this to happen NDP leader Tom Mulcair in Canada said that Prime Minister Stephen Harper was played like a chump in the talks that led to TPP Mulcair saying that conservatives were duped into accepting a really bad deal that Canada should reject it a significant part of this is politics but it also goes to something else I've been wondering Lewis which is how much do individual presidents and prime ministers really have uh, in terms of power here? Because we see both more liberal, moderate, and conservative leaders basically just in tow when it comes to TPP, at least with regard to what we know uh, uh, of, uh, of what came out of it. <laughs> You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, hashtag fall rising to stop the TPP. 
final agreement on the Trans-Pacific Partnership was reached this month, and the Obama administration PR push is already being rolled out. According to the New York Times, this would be the largest regional trade accord in history, and the president is likely to spend most of his final year in office securing approval from Congress. However, there is bipartisan opposition, opposition that needs to be supported and amplified. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, Public Citizen, and others continue to raise objections to the TPP. EFF is collaborating with Flush the TPP for next month's hashtag Fall Rising to stop the TPP, TTIP, and TISA. From Flush the TPP's website and Facebook event page, quote, From November 14th to 18th, people will converge on Washington, D.C. to demand that the United States drop these deals and create, in a transparent and democratic way, alternative international agreements that put people and the planet first, unquote. You can get more information on hashtag fall rising at EFF.org and register through flushthetpp.org. Flush the TPP is coordinating places to stay and food for participants through First Trinity Church. So if you can get there, you'll be taken care of. Those who wish to support the effort but are unable to attend can follow the fall rising hashtag and make donations at the registration page. You can also get projected job loss data for each state at citizen.org. Org, that's Public Citizen's website, and use contactingthecongress.org to send constituent-specific concerns to your legislators, asking them to vote against approval for the TPP, because your reps are always more likely to be responsive to narrow data that concerns whether voters in their districts will lose their jobs. The segment notes include all of the links to this information, as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If prevent this near-universally destructive trade deal matters to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about hashtag fall rising via social media so that others in your network can join in too. Activism. Come on out from in front of the television. Bust out of your self-imposed media prison. There's a whole big world out there, y'all. And some serious stuff is going down. Civil war intolerance, AIDS obliteration, the usual madness but not enough frustration about what's troubling Earth's nations. The spotlight will not be your savior in these dark days, and it will not be your saving grace. Why not replace your dreams of gracing life's stage with action? The New York Times reporting that a final agreement had been reached on the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a still-secret commercial agreement involving 12 nations in Asia and the Americas, subtly sneered at critics for opposing a document that they haven't been allowed to see. Quote, its full 30-chapter text will not be available for perhaps a month, but labor unions, environmentalists, and liberal activists are poised to argue that the agreement favors big business over workers and environmental protection. Close quote. That's the paper's Jackie Calms. And, quote, long before an accord was reached, it was being condemned by both Mr. Trump, the Republican presidential frontrunner, and Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, who is challenging Hillary Rodham Clinton for the Democrats' nomination. Close quote. Well, Calms presumably hasn't seen the agreement either, but that didn't stop her from reporting that the TPP could be a legacy-making achievement for President Obama and the capstone of his economic agenda to expand exports. 
She allows officials to sell the deal through selective leaks and broad claims like Obama's promise of, quote, opening new markets to American products while setting high standards for protecting workers and preserving our environment, close quote. Critics, meanwhile, have parochial agendas. Congressional Republicans who fear for local interests like sugar and rice or just oppose Mr. Obama at every turn. And then Hillary Clinton has been critical as she has campaigned among unions and other audiences on the left. You might hope reporters would see the secrecy around such an important deal as a problem in itself rather than an opportunity to scold critics for jumping the gun. And, though the piece doesn't say it, draft chapters were exposed by WikiLeaks, including one on environmental rules that the Sierra Club's Michael Brune said, quote, falls flat on every single one of our issues, oceans, fish, wildlife, and forest protections, and in fact rolls back on the progress made in past free trade pacts, close quote. It's also not as though we've never heard of these so-called trade pacts that promise to boost American jobs and decidedly have not. So you can criticize critics, as the Times implicitly does here, for not waiting till all the secret details are revealed, just as you can say Charlie Brown ought to wait and see whether Lucy is going to yank away the football this time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, you can either record a message with the voice memo app of your phone and email it to me, j at bestoftheleft.com, or leave a voicemail at 202-999-3991. Now, today, I would like to hear from you. I have some questions and uh, that's often the case. But today, it's not about politics, and it's not about philosophy. It's really about logistics. We're getting down to brass tacks here. And I, I, would just, I would like your advice on if we could do anything better, if there are any changes you think we should make, and so on. So I just wrote a list of, of the things we want you to do. And when you put it into a list, it, you begin to realize, like, oh, wow, that's kind of a lot of things that we ask of people. So there's the really obvious one, first of all, is you know we need monetary support for the show, so we ask you to donate or become a member as a you know recurring donor that way, and then you know sort of vaguely we, you know we want you to tell people about the show, so you know I try to encourage everyone, make sure to tell everyone you know about the show and spread the word, help build the audience that way, but then these other things are sort of really concrete actionable items, and we built systems around these items that we you know, want people to take advantage of. And that is uh, for people to share individual clips. We think that that is good for a variety of reasons. We know that people are going to hear specific things in the show that they may want to share specifically uh, without sharing the entire episode. Maybe you have a conservative uncle and he's just not going to listen to a show called Best of Left because he's just not. But you hear one clip in the show and you know he will listen to that. And so we make sure that that's available separately and you can send that off to him. 
And, and, you know, and then similarly, we have our activism segments. So clearly, we want you to take part in those activism segments. And then secondarily, we want you to share those activism segments, similar to sharing any other individual clip, so that other people can take advantage of that activism. And then finally, last but not least, we have all of our social media. We put out a lot of content on Facebook and Twitter, so we would like for you to like us and follow us and uh, share what we post and retweet our tweets and so on and so on. And so I was thinking about all of this because I, I was rem remembering back to in the early days of the show, you know, I, I was just getting my bearings and I was throwing everything I could think of at the wall and a couple of things stuck and a whole bunch of stuff didn't stick. And that's what I ended up with. Whatever stuck, that's what I kept doing long term. And then slowly but slowly, a couple of things got added here and there. You know, uh, individual clips haven't always been available. We haven't always done activism. So slowly we're trying to build and improve the show. But as we go, you know, I want to make sure that we're doing it in a way that is good and effective and actually gets used and so forth. So what I'm wondering is if you have any ideas of how we could do what we do better or if there's anything we don't do that we should be doing. So, you know, what, you know, think to yourself, do you take advantage of the fact that we post individual clips and do you share those clips? And if not, why not? If we did something differently, would that make it more likely for you to do that? Uh, just as an example, if we were posting individual clips on social media, are, are you like super active on social media? And if you saw us posting those individual clips there, then you know that would make it easier for you to send everything out that way rather than coming to our website to do it. Uh, the activism, do you take part in the activism we tell you about? If not, why not? If we did something different, would it make it easier for you? Do you share the activism? If not, why not? You know, how could we change anything about what we do to make it more likely that you would engage in these things? And, you know, and then social media, do you follow us on Facebook or Twitter? Is there some other social media outlet you think we should use? Uh, we have an email list, but we frankly don't keep it very active. Would that be an easier way to keep in touch with you? If so, what should we use it for? Should we be sending out individual clips and activism highlights in an email newsletter and you would use that and share from there? Th these are just what I'm coming up with off the top of my head. Uh, you can agree or disagree with any of those, but please feel free to come up with your own suggestions. I was just thinking that we really haven't made any big changes in a long time. I mean, I, I'm not sure we've made any small changes in a long time, and we all know there's always room for improvement, so I just figured, hey, maybe there's something that we're not doing or something we could do better, and, and maybe we're too close to it ourselves, and you know, we're too busy doing other things, and we just don't think about how to improve, but getting an outsider's perspective could be this totally uh, refreshing uh, you know, reset button where we get uh, new ideas that send us in new directions and we become more effective and reach more people and all becomes better in the world. So if you have any thoughts, please, please share them. Again, you can just email me directly. It doesn't have to be part of like a conversation that goes on the show. So you can just email me, j at bestofleft.com or record a message and send it there or call in with a voicemail 
I know you want us to be as effective as we possibly can be, and frankly, this is the sort of question I feel like I should ask way, way more often than I do. I was at a wedding this past summer, and somehow I ended up in a conversation with a drunk bridesmaid who apparently asked what I did for a living or something, and so I ended up telling her just a little bit about it, enough for her to uh, get very excited and begin talking about what a social media expert she was and how what I definitely, definitely needed to do was start uh, posting and tweeting. Uh, I think mostly she was talking about Tumblr and uh, she was saying it'd be really, really effective if I started uh, posting about basically like boy bands whose fan base is like 13 year old girls because they're really popular. And so we could tweet about them or post on Tumblr about them and then somehow like slyly like link it back to our political clips that we would put out somehow. And, uh, you know, like I said, she was drunk and so it wasn't totally coherent, but she definitely had strong opinions about engaging in the uh, boy band tween market. And I didn't end up taking any of her advice but I did realize at least all these months later that asking for advice is a perfectly good thing and all sorts of valuable uh, thoughts and ideas can come from an exchange like that. It's just also perfectly fine to realize you don't have to take every piece of advice at face value as it comes. So that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington in DC. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame how we get so trained. We can't see past our own sad stories and wonder what we're missing. We can't see past our stories and forget how to listen. We can't see past.